You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting live for WFHB, this is Don Guerra. And I'm Noel Hereski-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, September 13th, 2021. Later in the program, the Alzheimer's Association Walk to End Alzheimer's in Bloomington raised more than $100,000 over the weekend. WFHB News speaks with Kyle Davern, manager for the Bloomington Walk to End Alzheimer's. More coming up in today's feature reports. Also coming up in the next half hour, the Bloomington City Council voted on increasing salaries for officers at the Bloomington Police Department by $5,000. More in the top half of tonight's show. But first, your daily headlines. The Bloomington City Council voted on increasing salaries for officers at the Bloomington Police Department by $5,000. Council Member Dave Rollo supported the salary increase and laid out why the additional funding was necessary. Uh, In the past five years, we have hired 66 officers and we've lost 67. We've been barely adding sworn officers as quickly as they leave, usually for other communities, police forces for better pay and compensation. Uh, We believe this is an alarm bell that needs attending to. Uh, Now we observe that this loss is outpacing recruitment. We agree that public safety is a fundamental obligation of the city government, but we are chronically understaffed. As a resolution acknowledges, despite the 2019 organizational assessment by the NOVAC consulting group, hired by the city, recommending 121 sworn officers. We are authorized for 105. The number we have, we actually have is 91, with the effective number being only 76, another alarm bell. This staffing shortage has now resulted in mandatory overtime. Compelling officers to work uh, extra shifts, we believe is unacceptable. It invites mistakes, miscalculations. We cannot afford such things to occur. Council member Ron Smith pointed out that the cost of training police officers outweighed the additional salary increase. Council member Susan Sandberg commented on Bloomington's need for a quality police force. My obligation is to maintain adequate salary compensation to make sure we can recruit and retain the very best. We must keep our staffing levels high so our officers can take time off, be with their families, recharge their batteries. We need adequate staffing levels to maintain best practices in community policing, where officers are not feared and avoided, but where they are known to the neighborhoods they serve as public servants who are there to keep the peace and ensure public safety. We owe this community nothing less than our best effort to build up a strong and compassionate police department where we support those well-trained officers who put their lives on the line every time they get in their patrol cars. I strongly urge the support of this resolution. While non-binding, these recommendations have been made before, and now it is time to act on them in the interest of public safety. 
During the public comment, Kamala Brown-Sparks, interim chair of the Community Advisory Board on Public Safety Commission and the daughter of the first African-American police officer for the BPD, spoke on behalf of programs where officers live in the city where they are serving and partnering more with social services. If part of the incentive is being a Bloomington police officer and you're getting a house, an incentive for living in your house, well, uh, you need to live in the city where the people are that you serve. So they actually get the benefit of meeting you and you get the benefit of knowing them. And that's something about if you live and work in the black community, then you'll actually get the benefit of meeting and, and, and getting to know those people so that maybe the next time there's a call, you'll know the people that you have to interact with and you won't be scared as an officer. And maybe those people won't be scared of you as an officer because they've interacted with you before. So that's part of the benefit of having those kind of programs. And I'm not saying that I don't support the retention of officers because I, I believe it's important. I know what it's like to, to be at home and to be scared that your officer is not going to come home at night. The first number I learned how to, to dial was 911. And the operator finally called my mom back and they said, could you please teach your daughter the other number for the, the police department because she's tying up the line. So I know what it's like to be scared that your officer's not going to come home. But my mom was the first black social worker in Bloomington that worked for Area 10. So I also know what it's like to have the benefits of the programs that help the people and that ease the work for the police and that help the people in community so that they can get the benefit of the programs that they need so they don't have to call the police in so often. So there isn't violence that the police need to be there for to break up because the problems that the people actually need help for, they don't need the police to come and help them with those things. They need social workers to help them when they are unhoused. They need social workers like Mr. Smith that helped him from CPS. My mom used to work at CPS and sometimes my dad and mom would end up working on the same case. So sometimes you need the social worker to come in and help and the police can't help with that kind of thing. The social worker has to help with those kinds of things. That's the social worker's job. It's not the police officer that can do that. So they have to work together and help things. So that's what I want to say is you have to create partnerships to complete the change and make progress. And I hope that you take that into account too. The city council voted seven to one to one on the budget increase. The next meeting will be September 15th. The Bloomington Historic Preservation Commission approved a request to install solar panels on a house in the Prospect Hill Historic District at the September 9th meeting. According to Housing and Neighborhood Development staff member Gloria Collum, the commission believes in balancing the preservation of both historic and ecological resources and recommends the approval of the solar panel installation. Commission member Chris Sturbum explained his thought process on the subject. Yeah, I've always tried to balance the two, uh, preservation and ecology like this. So I think I'm evolving on this and seeing these more as removable objects that, you know, and who knows the 10 years, 20 years, there may be a different way of collecting um, mm -hmm. the energy. Um, 
they look like crap, but you know, they're important. So I'm I'm uh, I've come over to this side and I'm going to support this. The motion was approved. The next meeting will be held on September 23rd. At the Bloomington City Council Committee of the Whole, Council Member Steve Volan asked the council to consider capping the amount of time allotted for a single city council meeting at five and a half hours. He said it is better to break up the work instead of staying up until two or three in the morning. Uh, I am asking the council to consider um, uh, taking more into consideration the basic human needs of everyone who must attend a meeting um, and that uh, uh, making decisions in the middle of the night doesn't really benefit anybody, although it may provide some uh, political uh, convenience or uh, preference to uh, one political side or another. The ordinance he presented would require unanimous consent to continue the meeting, meaning if one council member wanted to recess for the night after five and a half hours, then the council would have to adjourn for the night. Vice President Sue Scamborilli asked on behalf of the individuals who might not be able to make public comment the following day. But I can also envision circumstances where members of the public have stayed a long, long, long time waiting to make comment, waiting to make comment. It would take another 15 minutes to get through those. And some of those people, while they may not have, it, it wasn't their first choice to be making comment at one in the morning, might also say, well, yeah, but I took off work. I worked night shifts and I took off this shift so I could be here. And we heard that actually with, with um, annexation quite a bit. I can't take off tomorrow when you're reconvening. What? Uh, how do we respond to that? Because I, th I think that's an entirely likely scenario sometimes. Council member Isabel Piedmont-Smith was in favor of the ordinance. She explained why she supports it. There is sometimes merit in continuing on the trajectory. And I have always taken it as a part of my uh, council responsibilities that we work until the job is done. And um, sometimes we go late into the evening. It's, it's not as often as perhaps we think. I know those are the nights we remember because they're painful. Uh, none of us want to have to go that late. But I will say the last couple of years, our workload has been intense. Councilmember Susan Sandberg agreed the meetings are arduous, but was cautious to make such a rigid ordinance in case of special circumstances. Volan agreed he would be willing to concede on an amendment that would make it take two council members instead of only one to adjourn the meeting. The council voted four to one to four on the ordinance. On September 8th, the Monroe County Storm Water Management Board worked on improving agricultural fields around the county airport property. Storm Water Management MS4 Coordinator Kelsey Thetonia updated the board on the conservation efforts needed for field erosion near Karst Park. Yesterday, I met with Martha and her um, NRCS staff, the producer, um, and the operations uh, gentleman with the airport to discuss um, installing some conservation practices on one of the worst fields on the southwest corner there. Um, so that kind of moved a bit quicker than I anticipated, and I was happy to hear that, but I wanted to give you an update on that and also just um, a discussion on, you know, how we can address some other erosion issues in that area while still meeting everyone's needs as far as land use and everything goes. 
board member Tron Enright-Randolph explain the situation going on between departments and staffing. Hiring stormwater management staff must be approved by the Personnel Administration Committee. They were talking about how um, highway and stormwater are going to take over some of the permitting processes and such from planning. And so then Council Member Hawk made a question, what should we scale back from planning? And I think it would be in our best interest to uh, advocate that uh, the stormwater uh, department, uh, Lisa and Kelsey, uh, work closely with planning to make sure that it's known that this isn't going to add additional free time for planning. It's going to help balance it a bit more and we don't need to scale back things. Um, I'm not sure if that's going to be the a larger discussion moving forward, but uh, my goal of bringing this up is that we do better coordination with planning department to make sure that it's known that this is going to add relief. The next meeting will be held on October 13th, 2021. Up next, we present some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues around the Midwest and beyond. KiteLine airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on the WFHB Community Radio. It's also available online at wfhb.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pennsylvania Department of Corrections has agreed to pay $1.5 million to the family of an asthmatic Philadelphia man who died after pepper spray was used on him at a state prison nearly two years ago. The agreement filed Tuesday in federal court in western Pennsylvania in the lawsuit filed by the family of 29-year-old Tyrone Briggs also includes a pledge by the department to implement new protocols on the use of pepper spray. Briggs was doused in the face with prolonged streams of pepper spray at the State Correctional Institution in Mahanoy in November 2019. After being heard saying he couldn't breathe, he struggled on a slow walk to the infirmary and waited a half hour for treatment, but was only given an inhaler. Taken to a solitary confinement cell, he soon collapsed and died. Thirteen staff members were suspended, and while details of a subsequent disciplinary action by the department have not been released, Press Secretary Maria Bivens said, quote, Involved security and medical staff members receive discipline up to and including termination, end quote. After the use of pepper spray was authorized in federal prisons in 2016, state lawmakers passed a law requiring that all state corrections officers be issued pepper spray. Purchase orders indicate that the department has pepper balls, projectiles, fogging devices, and crowd control sprays. Abolitionist Law Center lawyer Brett Grote said, Prison policy already bars pepper spray use on people with asthma during planned incidents such as cell extractions. In the future, he said, all staff will receive training on how pepper spray affects people with respiratory conditions, and anyone with such a condition subjected to it must have their oxygen levels measured and be removed by the chief medical official on duty.
Now it's time for your feature reports. Over the weekend, the Alzheimer's Association Walk to End Alzheimer's in Bloomington raised more than $100,000. WFHB News spoke with Kyle Davern, manager of the Bloomington Walk to End Alzheimer's. We turn to News Director Kate Young for that interview. Kyle Davern, manager for the Bloomington Walk to End Alzheimer's. Welcome to the WFHB Local News. How are you today? I'm hanging in there. And, and you, Kyle? Hanging in there. It's been, a, it's been a good day. Happy that walk is completed and, you know, had a really great event. So looking forward to see what, what comes of uh, our follow-up from the event. Absolutely. So first off, would you share with me some of the work that the Alzheimer's Association does? Yeah, absolutely. So the Alzheimer's Association, we're the leading voluntary health organization for Alzheimer's care support and research. Our, our kind of bread and butter of what we do is we've, we've worked with families who are impacted by Alzheimer's and all dementia. So they are looking for care and support research resources. They have access to our um, complete uh, options, kind of a, a menu of different things that they can have access to. We have a 24-7 helpline, which is something that's accessible for any caregiver to call into get questions answered about the disease, um, get information about local resources as well. Um, we also have support groups, which we are doing those virtually for the, the time being during the pandemic, but we do normally offer those as an in-person component just to kind of build that network of caregivers in the community and be able to share ideas on how to have those tips and tricks for caregiving as well. Um, and then we also offer education programs. So if employers or companies are looking to educate their workforce about Alzheimer's and dementia, and then also just kind of caregiving duties as well, too. We offer those programs at free of charge. Um, beyond just those programs and services, we also fund research. So we are one of the leading health organizations in funding Alzheimer's uh, research. So we, we don't fund research just here in the United States, but we fund uh, research globally as well. And then um, here in the state of Indiana also, and on a federal level, we advocate for Hoosier caregivers and people living with the disease making sure that there are bills being passed or introduced within legislation that helps benefit caregivers and the person living with the disease as well. I see. And I appreciate you touching on, you know, some of the work you guys do. Now I wanted to dive in a little bit more into the walk over the weekend. So nearly 440 residents participated in this year's Bloomington Walk to End Alzheimer's, both in person at Switchyard Park and by watching an online ceremony and walking from their home, for example, in their own neighborhoods. So would you describe this past weekend's event? What was the energy and the atmosphere like? Yeah, I think a lot of people were really energized, especially for the in-person component. This is their first in-person event that we've held since 2019. We did kind of a drive-through event in 2020 but just didn't have the same feel as what we normally have when we have people gathered to, you know, celebrate or honor and or in memory of someone that they love or they're one of their loved ones who they usually walk for. But um, people were really excited. I think that helped even energize some of our fundraising efforts that we had this year. So um, a lot of people were really excited about that. That the event itself, it was it was hot, but I will say that the wind, it was a little bit of a windier day, which was kind of helping keep the humidity down, which was nice. But Overall, it was a really, really great day. Wow. Well, thank you for, for touching on that. Now, the Alzheimer's Association Walk to End Alzheimer's in Bloomington raised more than $100,000. So all in all, what will those funds be used for? 
Yeah, so um, as I was mentioning earlier with some of our, our care and support resources, we'll continue to make those uh, accessible to all your caregivers, and those will be at no cost to the, those individuals, helping fund that 24-7 helpline, which I think is really a critical component of uh, it's a critical tool that's accessible to Hoosier caregivers because they are, you, you their loved one may have, you know, um, an unusual behavior that happens in the middle of the night and they can call up at any time of day whenever it's convenient for them to help get those tips and tricks or, you know, questions answered. Um, but also, I think the biggest thing is just funding for research to find a cure for this disease. Um, unfortunately, Alzheimer's is one of the leading causes of death in the United States, and um, it doesn't have a way to cure or slow down the progression of the disease. And so that's what we're really aiming to eventually have that first survivor of Alzheimer's. And that day we know is in our foreseeable future. More than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's disease, a leading cause of death in the United States. Additionally, more than 11 million family members and friends provide care to people living with Alzheimer's and other dementias. So would you touch on the effect Alzheimer's has on one's life and how it affects, how it can affect family and friends providing care for their loved ones? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, speaking from you know, personal experience, I, I actually had um, some close relatives who were diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And that's kind of what got me involved with the um, organization. And, you know, I think one of the things just seeing, you know, the caregiving duties done from afar, I think one of the things is it really just kind of isolates the caregiver in, in one situation. You know, my, my grandfather was a caregiver for my grandmother who was uh, in the very late stages of Alzheimer's. But they weren't able to go out and do as much just because her, her behaviors change on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I, I think what we as an organization uh, from the Alzheimer's Association standpoint is being able to equip caregivers with those tools and knowledge of the disease so they can help better prepare and provide that better quality of life for the individual living with the disease and then be able to help with their own caregiver stress as well. Because we know that, unfortunately, we've seen circumstances where caregivers unfortunately passed before the person living with the disease just because of the financial implications, the stress of caregiving. And so that's some of the you know stories that we hear on a day-to-day -day basis. And so this issue has affected you personally. So what impact has that made on you and the direction that your life ended up going, especially now that you're working for the Alzheimer's Association? What, what impact did that have on, on your life? Well, and I think one of the things for me just gave me a different understanding, you know, being able to connect with other individuals because I, I was very closely connected just with my own inner circle of um, you know, family being personally um, being the care, direct caregivers for someone living with the disease. But being able to meet individuals and hear their stories in each of the communities and then also working with some of our healthcare provider, um, you know, long-term care facilities who are providing that daily care for a person living with the disease as well. Um, it gave me a new perspective on just being able to understand, you know, the, the different stages of the disease, how to properly care for someone living with the disease as well, but just making sure that, you know, whenever we can assist as an organization that people use us as a resource to help provide that, that decreased caregiver stress. I see. And I know that could be difficult to talk about. So I, I really appreciate you touching on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so next, fundraising will continue throughout the rest of the year. So if folks did not participate in the walk, but they still want to help out, how might they go about doing that? 
Yeah, so um, one of the easiest ways to get involved, um, you know, as you mentioned, registration or donations, excuse me, are still uh, accepted throughout the end of the year. Um, if you go to alz.org slash walk, um, you can type in the zip code and you can locate the Bloomington Walk. And from there, you can uh, make a donation from uh, onto the website. There's also information about volunteering as well. We are, um, you know, while we are still wrapping up our 2021 season, we're going to be looking for 2022 volunteers to be a part of our planning committee. Um, if you're not interested in necessarily the walk, there's other information about how you can become a advocacy volunteer and help advocate for Hoosier caregivers and their, their loved ones living with the disease. Um, there's also ways that you can get involved on a program side of things. We're always looking for community educators or people to help facilitate the, uh, some of our support groups when we are back in person for hosting those as well. Now, in Indiana alone, there are more than 110,000 people living with the disease and 215,000 caregivers. So if folks want more information on programs or the helpline that you had mentioned, where should they go? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so anytime anyone is looking for any of our information, um, the easiest area for them to visit is alv.org slash Indiana. That is a whole list of different resources that the, our chapter specifically um, offers. Um, getting questions answered about the disease. There's also online education programs as well. So people can do that at their convenience to just kind of arm themselves with that knowledge of the disease. But more importantly, I think just to be able to have that as kind of in their back pocket, because even if someone's not personally impacted by this disease, at least they can share that information. I think it's all about awareness and how we can spread the word about our organization and some of the care and support resources that can benefit those caregivers. Absolutely. Now, Kyle, is there anything else you would like to add before we part ways? Um, I, if anyone's ever interested in getting involved, I'm happy to connect with any individuals. Like I mentioned, um, alz.org slash Indiana. That's where you'll find all the chapter resources and information and staff directory and who to reach out to for any of that information. If anyone's interested in getting involved in the walk, we always accept friends and family teams, company teams, church groups, um, any any organization in town um, would love to have people become a part of this event for this year and moving forward as well. But um, you can find all that information once again on the website at alz.org slash Indiana. Well, Kyle Davern, manager for the Bloomington Walk to End Alzheimer's, thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Husky schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Cade Young. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Noel Husky schneider And I'm Don Guerra. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered listener-supported independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast, as well as all other WFHB news programming online at WFHB.org. You can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at WFHB.org. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB.
You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 